Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Carlo Gambino's body now lies in state in Brooklyn, where the faithful come to pay their respects to the man who is the real-life counterpart of the fictional Godfather. And judging by the weight of floral tributes alone, Don Carlo had a lot of respect. Authorities showed their respect by sitting in parked cars across the street, trying not to be conspicuous as they snapped photos of the bereaved. On October 15, 1976, at the age of 74, Carlo Gambino, the boss of bosses, passes away peacefully in his Bayside home. His death sends shockwaves through the mafia community. Carlo was the underworld president of the United States. This real-life godfather commanded the same respect and power as his fictional counterpart. In death, as in life, he is revered. Gambino was said to be courtly. He was Sicilian-born, habituated to Hamburg hats. He bowed to his associates and settled disputes diplomatically. Carlo's funeral is the event to see and be seen at. Residents of all ages gather outside Our Lady of Grace Church in Massapequa, Long Island. While one might assume the average neighbor would be relieved organized crime is no longer lurking in the shadows, Carlo's community feels otherwise. They respond with warmth, crowding the stone staircase to pay their respects. What is the feeling about them in the neighborhood? Are they a good family? Oh yes, very good. Were they feared in the neighborhood at all? No, no, no. Never. 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 It was respectable. They're not dangerous. That day, Gambino associate Dominic Montiglio sits with his wife Denise in the second row of pews, along with his Aunt Rose and Uncle Nino Gaggi, a sign of their hierarchy within the family. That was all about the custom of Lowry's. And that's what Carlo... Carlo um, 
Maya Lansky. I mean, they they grew up together on the Lower East Side, you know. And Lucky Luciano, you know. I mean, Carlo was, to me, he was the most brilliant of all of them. Because number one, he put the most powerful crime organization together that the world's ever seen. Carlo beat every indictment. Carlo was very special. Carlo was special because it was Carlo who kept them safe. You see, Carlo Gambino handled his business quietly. He kept his hands clean. His hits were efficient and, most importantly, discreet. You feel that, too? No, well-kept in order here, the neighborhood. Got a nice neighborhood going here, thanks to them. Unfortunately for members of the neighborhood, this secure feeling is fleeting. With Carlo's passing, danger looms. The transition of power is ripe to be a bloody ordeal. And for Gambino associate Dominic Montiglio, the next few days will be a matter of life and death. So unless the families unite quietly behind a new leader, Gambino's death and this funeral signal the end of a period of relative calm and the beginning of a deadly new power struggle inside organized crime in America. What this reporter doesn't know is just how accurate this will turn out to be. From ID, I'm Celia Anaskovich, and this is Mafia Tapes. Episode 2, Make His Bones. In the last episode, we heard about Dominic's early days a moment in time when his life could have taken a different direction. But as you know, it didn't. 60s pop star would be his first of many abandoned lives. In order to fully understand who Dominic is today, we have to understand his various and complicated incarnations. So now, it's time to meet Dominic, the gangster. The whole family is set up like the military. What do they have in a mafia family? They got soldiers, soldate. They got lieutenants. They got capos, captains. And they got the capo dudes who take copies. Who are the generals? It was all based, the mafia is based on the Romans. This is from the recordings Dominic's friend Ross made. Recordings filled with countless hours of stories. It's very Machiavellian. I mean, that's the book. You know, any good wise guy has read The Prince. Machiavelli was a philosopher from the 16th century who advocated tactics such as deceit and murder of innocent people to help advance one's own reign. That's the game. And it's not only the mafia game. It's the whole world order you know, lives by Machiavelli. Nobody was innocent. No, nobody was innocent. If you wanted to get into the game, whether you were a peripheral figure or whether you were an active member of a clan, nobody was innocent. 
And if no one is innocent, where does that leave Dominic Montiglio? It's the fall of 1976. Dominic's uncle Nino plays the Machiavellian game better than most. Nino is patient. Nino is cautious. And Nino sees Carlo Gambino's death as a window of opportunity. He started taking me around with him. And I started meeting all the wise guy honchos. I mean, Paulie Castellano, I was from when I was a kid. Paul Castellano is Carlo Gambino's brother-in-law. He's among those in consideration to become the new boss. This would be a huge opportunity for Nino. Nino is part of Castellano's crew. And if Paul rises, so does Nino. Dominic, of course, knows that if Nino rises, so could he. Here is Dominic sharing his story back in the 90s. This is from the same documentary we played in episode one. His details are precise and delivery perfect, as if he's performing lines from a script. After Carlo died, there was two factions of the family. There was the Brooklyn faction, which was basically headed by Paul Castellano. And there was the Manhattan faction, um, which was headed by Aniello Della Croce. Um, one of those two were going to be boss of the family. It was a very tense time because that that is always when it's very ripe for war within the families. Nino spoke to me in the afternoon. He said, we're going to make Pauly tonight. So I went to the Gemini. Let me stop this for a second. The Gemini, for those who don't know, is the DeMeo crew headquarters. And I picked up a package which turned out to be uh, an M2 carbine. Went home and assembled it, and Nino said that um, the Manhattan faction would be coming to the house about uh, 7, 7.30, and that I was to go upstairs in my living room window, which overlooked the entranceway to his apartment downstairs and the driveway. The meeting is held on Cropsey Avenue in the bunker. The looming danger is too great to ignore. Dominic instructs his wife to take his daughter Camry and leave, now. Only Uncle Nino and Dominic remain. Nino instructs Dominic to keep watch from the living room window. Dominic has a front row seat. And he said there's supposed to be no guns at the meeting. He says, but I'm taping a pistol under the table. He says, if anything goes wrong and you hear any shooting downstairs, He says, just kill everybody that comes out of the house. Steady and prepared for combat, Dominic peers out from the window, clutching his weapon. Dominic feels the adrenaline coursing through his veins, a feeling he says reminds him of his time in Vietnam. It makes him feel alive again. At 7.15 p.m., the Manhattan faction arrives. 15 minutes pass, And Dominic watches as Joe Gallo and his Manhattan crew get into their cars and drive off. A minute after that, Nino knocked on my door, and I went downstairs, and he said, Paulie's the new boss. After listening to the intricate detail and precise narrative in Dominic's version of events, it almost seems too dramatic. 
Dominic ready to open fire with his M2 carbine if the meeting goes south? I've researched the transfer of power from Carlo to Paul. In various sources, it suggests that before his death, Carlo Gambino had designated Paul Castellano as his successor, meaning it was already a done deal. If a meeting happened at all, it was likely a formality. So is Dominic's story made up? Is he embellishing? Or did this actually take place? This is the first time I realize all of Dominic's incredible stories may not have happened exactly as he says they did. And it reminds me of something his friend Ross told me the first time we spoke. He compared Dominic to Edward Bloom from the movie Big Fish. From the imagination of director Tim Burton. Most men, they'll tell you stories straight through. It won't be complicated, but it won't be interesting either. Just like Edward Bloom, when it comes to Dominic's stories, it's hard to know where the line between fact and fiction falls. When a kernel of truth takes on a life of its own. How the stories we tell about ourselves and the people we love become more important, more real, than what actually happened. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, 
When Paul Castellano takes over as boss of the Gambino crime family, Nino Gaggi climbs a notch in hierarchy to Capo, short for Capo Regime, essentially a VP in the Gambino operation. And Nino was granted the opportunity to increase the size and prominence of his own crew. Big things are in store for Dominic. And he sort of gives, if you're going to be in this thing, you got to, you know, you got to make your bones. Still, Dominic has to prove himself. Up until this point, Dominic's main responsibility is picking up the weekly bigs. The big wish. It's, it's the interest we charge. So, in other words, if I loan you 250000 at, say, three points, you have to pay me $1,750 a week to keep the money. It doesn't knock anything off the principal, you know, until you pay me back the two hundred fifty grand. But in order to make his bones... Dominic has to hurt someone, and Nino knows just the guy. Twelve years earlier, Nino had driven his brother's wife to the grocery store on Bath Avenue. And um, she got out of car. She was very good looking, my aunt. And she got out of the car, and there was a bunch of guys hanging out there, and they made a comment. And Nino jumped out of the car with a hammer and started trying to beat them. And this one guy hit him and broke his nose. So 12 years later, he said to me, he said, you know, we got to whack this guy. His name is Vincent Governara, a former classmate of Dominic's. We went to school together. I mean, I knew the guy. When Dominic finally enters that life, it's to provide for his new family. But this isn't working as a driver or picking up vigs. And this isn't war. This would be murdering an innocent man. Vincent has no ties to organized crime. He isn't a criminal. Vincent is guilty of being a flirt and having a good right hook. His car was parked on 20th Avenue and Bath Avenue, like a block away from the 6-2 precinct. And what we decided to do is rig a hand grenade in this car. So I broke into the car. Dominic uses the skills he learned in Vietnam to appease the only father figure in his life, his uncle Nino. I rigged it like under his seat and cut the, the spoon with uh, pliers so the spoon wouldn't get hung up when it sprung underneath the seat. And I took fish hooks, you know, leads, and I tied one around the pin and hooked it into his driver's side door and one around the body of the hand grenade and hooked it into the floor. Got out the back. Then I broke toothpicks in the doors and stuffed them in. So, like, if he tried to get in any other door, it wouldn't work. The only door that he could get in was the driver's side. But also, aside from the precinct being there, there was PS200, which was all the kids who were in the school. 
This familiar rush of adrenaline engulfs Dominic as he completes his mission. The only thing left to do is wait for the explosion. I sat on my porch all night because it's like four blocks away because I knew in the morning the kids were going to be going to school. So I was going to wait till like six in the morning and if it didn't go off, I was going to go in and disarm it and take it out, you know, because I didn't want no kids to get hurt. And about four o'clock in the morning, I was sitting on the porch and I heard it. And it went, you know. But those aren't things you enjoy. You know, it's just part of, it's part of the job. It's part of the business. But they enjoyed it. There's just one problem. And oddly enough, what happened was he didn't die. He didn't die. It boomed out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> he wound up on the marquee of the deluxe movie theater on Fifth Avenue. And he was all broken up. He had a lot of broken bones and shit. And what happened was after he healed up, you know, he took off and he lived in California for like two years. And that's basically when, you know, I had my stock in, in the life. That's what they say, your stock has risen. So my stock rose. But it's all fucked up anyway, because your stock don't matter. Because the tougher you get, the more scared they get, the more they try and keep you down. That's the game. According to Dominic's close friend Ross, like many father-son dynamics, Dominic both feared and idolized his Uncle Nino. He was, like, taken from his old man and reared by his uncle who pulls him in to his world, you know, and kind of pimps you out, kind of, you know, plays you. Because Dom came home from Vietnam and he was a killer. Like he, he, he had been in Vietnam, he was a soldier. And I think Nino saw like, wow, I could use him for a lot of things. He could be like my little right-hand man and I could direct him around to do shit for me, you know? And he has capabilities. While the car bomb establishes Dominic's reputation, he says the explosion triggers something else. Back then, there wasn't a name for it. But today, we call it PTSD. The car bomb brought back a memory for Dominic. Back to one of his most harrowing experiences in Vietnam. The Battle of Hill 875, which he remembers as follows. There was about 2,000 of us, and we ran into 40,000 North Vietnamese. <laughs> Odds weren't good. But one thing I can, I can actually say is we took the hill. You know, it took six days, but we took it. But we lost an incredible amount of people. You know, I mean, in the first, the first 15 minutes, we lost all our offices, and only one medic was still alive. You know, I mean, that was in the first 15 minutes of contact. And it went on for six days after that. The ground was soaked with just blood. You know, it was running down from the top, you know, from bodies that were up there. It was people that were here, that were, you know. And you were just like walking and squishing in, in blood, you know. And you were fighting in it, you know. So it was like, it was, uh, it was a horror show. That's where the post-traumatic stress and the survivor guilt and all of that really set in. Because it was the uh, single biggest firefight of 
the whole Vietnam War in 11 years. According to Dominic, he was severely wounded in battle. Two weeks later, he woke up in a military hospital, one of the few to survive Hill 875. But I think out of all my experiences in Vietnam, I think that was one single thing that just really twisted my head. As we've come to learn through years of research, PTSD isn't curable. It's persistent, erratic, and paralyzing. It lurks in the shadows and pounces when least expected. And, you know, I mean, I I know your whole PTSD thing and and stuff like that. You know, you take a lot of meds for it. Yeah. And basically to just chill the temper of... uh, Bad thoughts. Bad thoughts. Well, the the medication is like... uh, Number one, it took it took years for them to finally get the right combo. You know, they had me so screwed up, and I'd be eating and just drooling. You know, food would just be coming out of my mouth. I was so like out there on this medication they had me on. Right. And the stuff I take now, it, like, normally it keeps me pretty good. Um, but like you said, you know, every once in a while, it's just something comes into your head. You know, it could be a, a, a nightmare that you don't even remember, you know, that you had. But some days you just wake up and, I mean, you're just shaking. Yeah. I mean, your insides are, like, rattling, your hands. I mean, even when I paint, there's some days, like, where I just have to do big stuff. Because if I try and, you know, my hands are too shaky. But normally, which I know it's, it's not good advice for children... But when that happens, I just get a bottle of booze, mix it with the medication, and it kind of works, you know. But I I don't drink like I used to drink. However distant Vietnam is in Dominic's life, the pain lingers. Ever since I met him, and and how that manifests is like, he'd have reoccurring dreams. Uh, He'd dream about Vietnam stuff. You know, guys that died, battles, you know, sloshing through the blood uh, till 875 like he he would he would recount vietnam stuff quite often i always looked at it like he had ptsd from both being a gangster and from being in a war and you know it was a bottle and, and pills dom had all this medication from the va every bottle says do not take with alcohol and he would drink with it despite the triggers that come along with it Dominic elects to fall deeper and deeper into that life. With Carlo Gambino gone, violence seeps more and more into the family's business dealings. And that violence is at the behest of Roy DeMeo and his notorious crew. It's time to meet the DeMeo crew. The monsters who haunt Dominic's nightmares. The ones beckoning him to hell. Their story goes hand-in-hand with Dominic's story. A few miles from Dominic's childhood home is the neighborhood of Flatlands. In the 1970s, Flatlands, like Canarsie, Bensonhurst, and Bath Beach, is largely dominated by Italian immigrants. Trash is piled high. Buildings are burning. Disco is blaring. Crime is rising at a catastrophic rate. Brooklyn, then, is a far cry from the Brooklyn of today. You're not going to find an artisanal yogurt shop or craft brewery. 
back in Roy DeMeo's day. In 1978 alone, over 79,000 cars are abandoned in New York City. Many of these are stolen, stripped, and sold for parts. There was a huge stolen car ring, you know, in Brooklyn around that time. I mean, they were stealing cars left and right. I knew plenty of kids that were 16, 15, that were stealing cars already. I've ridden in stolen cars. I, I mean, the only car that I ever stole was some guy pulled up to a newsstand on uh, Flappish Avenue and got out and left his car running and went in to buy whatever. And me and a friend of mine jumped in and we took off and went to a bunch of nightclubs there in Manhattan. <laughs> How old were you when that happened? Uh, 15. Well, we had very different childhoods, I think. That's Tim Hassan, who we heard from in episode one. He grew up in the Flatlands neighborhood. Tim would spend countless hours skipping school and drinking at a small neighborhood bar called the Gemini Lounge. You know, it wasn't special to look at. It was like white stucco, and it had uh, a sign along the, uh, I think the East 41st Street side or something that said, uh, said Gemini Lounge. The Gemini Lounge is owned and operated by Roy DeMeo. Roy was kind of like uh, a little shorter than me, maybe 5'10", 5'11", at that time, and he was stocky. He had black hair, was plastered back. He's probably in his late 30s or 40. I didn't know that that he was Roy DeMeo. I, I just knew him as Roy, but I knew that he owned that bar. Roy DeMeo presides over the gritty streets surrounding the Gemini Lounge. He's a close ally of Nino's and jealous of his new ranking. Many know Roy as the Fagan of Flatlands, a title coined because of the ragtag bunch of street kids he assembled. In 1973, Roy wants to make a name for himself within the Gambino crime family. So he has two choices, earn money or kill people. Roy realizes the best way to make fast cash, and a lot of it, is perfecting his stolen car ring. And when it comes to stealing cars, there's only one guy at the top of everyone's list. The undisputed best in the business, Pete LaFrosha. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, uh, I can't see you, so I don't know who you are as well as you can't see, but my name is Pete LaFrosha. Uh, grew up in Brooklyn. I'm Sicilian. I lived a wild and crazy life. Roy's insistent that Pete join his crew. And I get a phone call, and uh, he says, you know who this is? I says, no. He says, this is Roy. I want you to come down to the Gemini. I said, Roy, Roy who? You know, I says, he says, uh, just come to the Gemini. I says, well, I can't right now. I'm watching my daughter. He says, you're not coming? I says, I told you, I'm watching my daughter. About five minutes later, he calls back. Now he's very arrogant. You better get your ass down here. So I says, you know what? Fuck you. I hung up. <laughs> About 10 minutes later, I hear this car screech in front of my house. I'm outside with my daughter. And he gets out of the car. All of a sudden, my cousin came out with a 12-gauge, right? Pumped it, fired one shot in the head. He says, if you ever touch my cousin again, I'll blow your head up. Boy, right away, 
calm the situation down. He says, okay, okay, relax. He says, let me tell you what I got to offer you. I said, and what could that be? He says, well, I'll give you a spot. I said to my son, something. Why do I need you? You know, really, in all reality. Still not realizing who the hell they were. So he says, you're going to need us. You know the saying, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse? It takes him some time, but Pete ultimately gets that this is one of those offers. So what I looked at, he says, you come down Monday. And I went down Monday, and I got recruited. (laughs) And that's how that went. Thanks to Pete, Roy's car ring becomes the perfect operation. Back in the day, you should get like maybe $150 per car, right? Unless it was a special one, unless it was this color, this All right, maybe 200 That was back in the day. I used to go out at night. I used to start at 11 o'clock, wind up maybe 2.30. I used to grab about 17 cars, you know? I mean, I'm not bragging, but the FBI will tell you. They said I was the best. The money begins to pour in. He groomed some people the wrong way, some young guys, you know, which which was his way of doing things, you know. You know, he called me Mr. Mysterious because I would I would do what I want to do and I'd pop up out of nowhere, you know. I know Roy loved me, and I know that maybe he wasn't the type of guy that you should love, but he had his qualities, you know what I mean? But he was a terror. He was a ter- he was strong as a bull. Let me tell you something. When that guy grabs you, you weren't getting away. The Fagan of Flatlands is crowned the king of the stolen car racket. And his crew gets a reputation for their crafty methods. But the more they steal, the more they become of interest to law enforcement. There was a problem one time with uh, an officer. His name was Joe Wendling. This cop, for some reason, had a hot arm for me. Joe Wendling is a detective for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Organized Crime Division when he first hears about this new and savvy crew. A crew with an impeccable system for stealing cars. They had an organization that ran just as good as General Motors or Chrysler or Ford. They would go to uh, junkyards, which they controlled, that had a very bad car accident and the car was totaled out and they would buy the car as junk. And they would take that VIN number and place it on a brand new stolen car and then be riding around with it and then sometimes sell it. These are known as tag jobs. The masterminds behind this operation are Roy DeMeo's recently assembled group of deviants. Apart from Pete, there are the Gemini twins. Gemini twins, that's uh, Joey Testa and Anthony Senta. If you've seen one, you've seen them both. They never traveled alone. They were more of the enforcers. They dressed with tailored suits, tailored-made shirts. Uh, They spared no expense on their wardrobe. Henry Borelli? Henry was a a happy-go-lucky. He would be the one that would be the most kidded, the, the, the one that fooled around a lot. And Roy's protege, Chris. Chris Rosenberg looked to Roy... As a father, he, he, he would have done anything that man said. He knew he could never go anywhere in the family because he did not have an Italian name. Chris was the type of kid, you know, 
we were still 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 in cars and doing crazy shit. But this kid was such a how do I explain that he'd argue with girls and they would beat the shit out of him. I'd have to laugh. He's over me. He he was that type of guy, you know. He didn't have no. Uh, that's how I met Chris. Still cars. In the early years of the stolen car ring, Chris Rosenberg meets a young repairman named Andre Katz. They become business partners of sorts. Chris supplies Andre with cocaine and stolen Volkswagen vans. This is the same system Joe Wendling described before. The system, he says, runs as efficiently as General Motors, Chrysler, or Ford. But there was times where Chris was very handy at that. He was able to... We, we uh, had these special dies called inverted dies, so that when you punch the metal, instead of it going down, it would make it impossible to be standing up. And it wasn't hard. You know, peaceful aluminum. It was so... Simple. Until a friend of Andre's is stopped by the police. The cops realize the VIN plate is phony. But instead of keeping his mouth shut, the friend points the finger at Andre. What ensues next is a violent blame game between Andre Katz and Chris Rosenberg. And uh, he had known Chris Rosenberg, but there was bad blood between them because they were both Jewish, and he was a proud Jewish gangster. And he used to make fun of Chris Harvey for trying to be Italian when you're just a little Jew, he would say. And this would drive Rosenberg crazy because he went around as Chris DeMeo. So when a deal went wrong, there became bad blood. And uh, Chris threatened him to the point where he wasn't gonna take it anymore, and he shoots Chris three times but Chris survives and never forgets it and vows to get even Andre Katz shoots Chris a deadly mistake believing his life is in jeopardy Andre cuts a deal with the Brooklyn District Attorney but thanks to the cop he's gone on his payroll Roy DeMeo finds out about this development so they're afraid that uh, Andre's going to spill the beans on the whole operation. But uh, Roy gives the orders, all right, we have to kill him. A test for his new crew. Are they willing to go the extra mile to please their mentor? So what had happened? They knew he was sweet on this girl. And Joey and Anthony had talked to the girl and persuaded, listen, we want to have a meeting with him, but uh, he's afraid, he won't talk with us. Can you arrange to go out with him. He wants to go out with you. And instead of going out with him, we'll pick him up and then we can talk to him. And this is what they did. And the the day he was supposed to go over to a house and pick her up, they're waiting in a van. And it's uh, Joey, Anthony, and I think Henry. The trap is set. They bring him to Pantry Pride in Howard Beach. And Chris goes crazy on him. To the point where he stabs him over 20 times in the chest. And uh, to Roy's amazement, uh, he respects Chris's viciousness. And he looks forward as that as a plus. And then the rest is history. Uh, They dismember him. They put his head in a cardboard press. 
and they throw the body in a dumpster. The newly formed Mayo crew achieve a successful hit, but their methods are sloppy. A vagrant, looking for food, goes through the produce bin, the fat bin, where uh, the, the fat is trimmed off the meat, whatever is thrown in, and he thinks he has found a leg of lamb. And he was wrapped in butcher paper, everything else, he opens it up, and what turns out to be is a man's thigh. At which time, he, he is so frightened and taken back, he, they call the police. The police respond, and they open up the, the container, the metal container, and they take out all the packages that look alike, and they open them up, and it's the parts of a man. The legs, the arms, the feet, and when they open up this other package, it was Andre's head. So where is Dominic during all of this? I was in charge of them. Basically, Nino would spend five, six months out of the year in Florida. So I had to, like, basically oversee the crew and report to him what they were up to. That's what my slot was, which was kind of a scary fucking job, you know, because they made you disappear. So they could kill you anytime they wanted to. Nobody's ever going to find your body. And I can understand if they're going to try and kill you because you did something. But when they're going to try and kill you for what they think you might do, then all the fucking rules are off. Mafia Tapes is produced by Gigantic Pictures for ID. The show is hosted, written, and produced by me, Celia Anaskovich. Story producers are Caitlin Colford and Maggie Robinson-Katz. Producers are Pamela Ryan and Jeff Spivak. Music by Allison Layton-Brown. Sound designer is Sam Baer.